All right, I'm here with Dr. Colleen Huber. Um, she is a naturopath physician based in Arizona. Um, and also, and you say naturopath. I, I always hear naturopath. Oh, it's a tomato, tomato sort of thing. Okay. So uh, either one is okay. Naturopathic, but naturopathy. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, either way is fine. Okay. <laughs> you. And you're also a naturopathic oncologist, which I had never heard of. And if we get a chance, I'd love to you to hear you speak a little bit about that. Um, you have, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, Thank you for having me. You've been doing a lot of work this past year on um, stuff related to the lockdown, on on well, stuff related to COVID, on the lockdowns, on the mask effectiveness, mask harm. Um, and one thing that so so I'm on Twitter. I'm not on a whole lot, but I do know who the good people are to follow. And you were one of the best. I, I felt like you were one of the people posting some of the best content um, on Twitter about this and suddenly you disappeared. Uh, what happened? Well, I've just been permanently suspended. I learned a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. and I had been suspended five times. Each time I accurately quoted and linked to peer reviewed uh, published medical literature or a uh, standard news source, um, Israel National News, uh, the mm -hmm. last time. Uh, the time before that, uh, the United States uh, Department of Agriculture webpage, uh, you know, where they talked about, uh, the. they didn't mention mass directly, but they mentioned that carbon dioxide is used to euthanize farm animals. And I said, well, here's the link to the USDA webpage. You can see it right there. I accurately quoted them. And uh, what is the accumulating carbon dioxide inside your mask doing to you and your kids? I, I put that on Twitter. Well, I got suspended for that one. I got suspended for, oh, for criticizing the uh, manipulability of, shall we say, of the PCR test for COVID. But I made the mistake of saying that back in August and the World Health Organization didn't say it until about December. So right. I was four months too early, and so therefore I was suspended, even though they ended up saying the exact same thing that I had earlier. I was yeah. just too early. So I've been told by Twitter that I've been suspended permanently. Now, when that happens, because you're not the only one this has happened to, there have been quite a few, and right. recently several pretty prominent people um, very with very good credentials have been suspended for, for similar things. Right. When that happens, is there a dialogue? Do you get to write back and say, hey, I think this was legitimate. Why, you know, what, what's your reason for suspending me? And is there any kind of dialogue there? Uh, yes, but they say, we'll look into it. Thanks for your patience. We'll get back to you. And then what happened, that, that's the only thing that uh, has happened, except that Twitter also says, this is the post that violates our rules and therefore, uh, you must delete the post before getting back on. That's what they said the first three or four times. But I agree with you about uh, people who have been saying it's really necessary, valid, and helpful things have been uh, taken off of Twitter. And, you know, who comes to mind most prominently for me is Dr. Zev Zelenko, because I think he showed the world what to do about COVID. He, he posted excellent material. He's got a peer-reviewed uh, research backing up what he did, and that's what he wrote about. So he's been off of Twitter for months. It looks like um, perhaps he'll never be back. I don't know. And then, um, you know, El Gato Malo has also been- Ah, he was huge. Oh, 
Yes, exactly. Toby Rogers, uh, you know, had said really important information and cited it and backed it up. And I wait, Toby's I found everything gone. Unfortunately, oh I think so. God. I think it's been a couple of months now. Wow, yeah. wow, yeah. It's the the, and I know this isn't really your area, but the whole the the censorship of the treatments I find just kind of horrifying, actually. And, and you know, it's not just Twitter; it's it's sort of the whole mainstream media has been doing this too. Um, I just I wonder how history is going to look back on that. Um, yeah, I, a big part of my book is on uh, treatments, and um, I've, I've cited over 500 studies from the medical literature showing what works, the treatments in my book, and what doesn't work, uh, namely mass lockdown, social distancing. And I'm just going to um, hold this up so people can can see. This is this is your book. It's just just recently released, and I'll put a link up to it in the show notes too. Um, so. The content that I've been seeing from you has, has, and a lot of your own, the stuff that you've been producing, um, you've done a lot of research on the efficacy of masks, the harm that masks do, um, as well as lockdowns. I'd like to focus a little bit on the harm from masks. Certainly. Could you tell me a little, so I kind of want to ask two questions. First of all, what what is what is sort of the worst end of that? What's the worst stuff that, you're, that you've found and then after you've gone through all of that, what are the best arguments? What are the, what are the strongest arguments for masks? Well, uh, I think what alarms me the most is that masks have been forced onto children who I think are uh, even more vulnerable to adults, but we all certainly are. Uh, there is a neurologist, Marguerite uh, uh, Friesperson, who has predicted that there will be a tsunami of dementia, quote unquote, uh, from mask use. Well, to uh, inflict this beginning in childhood is even more alarming than to inflict it on adults, uh, especially, well, including adults who uh, are driving around on the roads that the rest of us are using. That's um, one of the things I worry so about. The cognitive. Yes. I mean, the cognitive hits, the uh, hits of memory, you know, I find with um, mass individuals who come in to see me that they very often are asking me to repeat myself and saying, I can't find my words, you know, I, uh, I'm having uh, memory problems. And I, you know, I try to warn people about uh, mask hazards whenever I get the opportunity. Uh, so I personally worry about the hit to the brain, but there's a lot of other problems. Um, for example, in, there's cardiovascular risk. Uh, 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 people who measure their uh, blood pressure while masked uh, will often find that it averages 12 points higher systolic. At least that was uh, confirmed in a study, a clinical study. Um, not only that, but their heart uh, beats faster. Um, the desperation for oxygen uh, makes us inhale more. So let me get into pulmonary issues. Um, the inspiratory flow, that is, you know, having to take a breath more desperately, uh, brings whatever is in the upper respiratory tract more likely to come into the lower respiratory tract. Here's where that's a problem. There was a study of European train commuters. They put on new clean masks at the beginning of the train ride. And one hour later, 
Uh, those masks were cultured to see what would, what had grown on them. Within one hour, about 100,000, the average 100,000 so uh, bacterial colonies had grown within that hour on a new mask on a train commuter. I'm, I'm in, on the train commuter's uh, study. So if we're growing all this bacteria, you know, on the inside of the mask, and then, you know, being more desperate for oxygen, having that dyspnea, the shortness of breath that makes it go, <gasps> and take it down deeper into the lungs, well, we don't have the resources in the lower respiratory tract to escalate and kick out this uh, these pathogens like we do in the upper respiratory tract. The upper respiratory tract, we have cilia, you know, these little hairs, and mm-hmm. they, they move things out. Uh, you know, um, I mean, they're kind of designed to deal with external pathogens, but the lower respiratory tract is not. And so as a result, the last time that Americans masked uh, and masked uh, was the uh, so-called Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, really neither Spanish nor the flu for reasons we could get into, but anyway, uh, um, Anthony Fauci's team, his research team at the NIH had found that, uh, and they published it in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, that when they uh, examined specimens from cadavers of that era of a hundred years ago, 102 years ago, they found that all of them had died of bacterial pneumonia. And what they said was that it was secondary to ordinary bacteria that are ordinarily in the mouth, staph, strep, uh, that we normally have pseudomonas we have in our mouths, and um, that these had been drawn deep into the lower respiratory tract and had killed them of bacterial pneumonia. Um, so that, uh, that could be a bit of an issue uh, at some point. However, uh, Americans have masked for perhaps um, eight or 10 months by now, and uh, maybe a bit longer. Um, so what, we also are not getting accurate information out of the CDC. Uh, if you look really hard, you see that uh, you know deaths from heart disease have gone down, supposedly COPD, pneumonia, flu has actually gone down, but uh, to an equal amount, the aggregate being an equal amount to how COVID went up. In other words, 0.9% of Americans die every year. That included 2018, 2019, and 2020. So, uh, but that's another whole issue. So one of the things that I had read about was, um, getting back to the mask harms, was that there's actually a a potential link to cancer in that when you have hypoxia, you're depriving, could you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. Uh, Otto Warburg uh, won the uh, Nobel Prize for Biochemistry in 1931. What he had shown was that cancer originates. The beginning of cancer in a cell begins with deprivation of oxygen. Deprivation of oxygen forces a cancer cell to no longer rely on the usual mechanisms to nourish itself and uh, conduct usual metabolic processes but rather has to rely on a different mechanism, a mechanism that uh, doesn't depend on oxygen and that takes uh, sugar primarily and converts it to lactic acid. So a cell can revert to that. That's called anaerobic glycolysis. And uh, that he showed was the initiation of cancer. That the lack of oxygen was the originating event and that sugar was the... uh, the fuel that kept it going. So that that cell converted to a cancerous cell 
uh, was cell that had been normal and uh, perhaps some of its neighbors as well. Interesting. So, so when we hear about the sugar cancer connection, is that, yeah. is that, it's, it sounds like it's a little more complex than just ingesting sugar can, can feed or support cancer that you first have to have this, some, some kind of oxygen deprivation or something else going on first. Is that sort of right? Yeah. I, I mean, it seems to be that that is the initiating event in cancer, but you know, uh, we, if we're overly sedentary, uh, we can have less oxygen intake coming into the body than if we are physically active, bringing in more oxygen to the body. Uh, it could be a variety of things that happen that result in the oxygen deprivation. But, um, oh yes, sugar and cancer is a topic I'm very familiar with. In fact, uh, because you know I'm a naturopathic oncologist and I've treated cancer patients for 14 years. Um, using natural treatments. Uh, but one of them uh, was a strong recommendation to please try to avoid sweeteners in the diet. And our clinic actually did the, what is still the longest and the, um, the longest and largest study still in medical history that anybody's recorded of sugar intake in cancer patients. Um, hundreds of people were involved in this and we asked all of them to not eat sweetened foods. However, uh, you know, people will do what they're going to do. So some of them said, okay, I'll get all the sweetened foods out of my diet. And others said, no, nah, I don't think that's important. Um, the people who continue to eat sweetened foods, only 36% of them went into remission. But of the people who avoided sweetened foods, 93% went into remission. Wow. So it was such a stark contrast, 93% versus 36%, that it was the most uh, impactful uh, event. It was the most impactful factor. By the way, um, you may be familiar with the mechanism of a PET CT, a PET scan. Yes. It's a, um, yeah. So what happens is the radioactive glucose is injected into the patient. Now that that sugar that sugar liquid is going to go somewhere. It has to it has to go somewhere in the body. You know, it's going to stay in there for a while. Um, so uh, we see that the brain will light up, um, the bladder will light up as it's you know building its reservoir of this liquid, waiting to uh, be eliminated. And the um, okay, but but what will light up very strongly is the cancer. It'll light up so much that. You can see even the outlines of a tumor by the sugar went here, including here, 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 but did not go to the periphery, did not go externally to the tumor. So uh, sugar feeds cancer to that great extent that the sugar will go all over here where there's cancer, but it will not go here where there's normal tissue because cancer needs and grabs the sugar uh, because once it had you know, started a, a process of being deprived of oxygen, the fuel that keeps it going uh, is sugar. And now it's soft cells or, uh, you know, progeny cells have learned that mechanism. They've, they've learned and adopted that mechanism. And that is how those cells, that the line uh, uh, goes forward or, or perpetuates itself. Right. And is this across all different kinds of cancer or is, are there some cancers that behave differently? 
Yeah, interestingly enough. Uh, so people call our clinic all the time and say, oh, yes, I understand what you do, but do you treat this type of cancer that I have, they say. And I say, uh, well, you know, it, it, with, with respect to chemotherapy, that matters. But with respect to the uh, metabolic treatments that we do, that does not matter because that is the initiation of all cancers. It is what they have in common. So whereas, yeah, whereas the specific type of cancer is very important for uh, choosing a chemotherapy drug that an oncologist may do, a conventional mm -hmm. oncologist may do, um, for the metabolic treatments, it's not as important. In fact, uh, what it makes more impact is the pattern of metastases, like oh, where if somebody comes in with a stage four cancer, where else did it go besides the primary spot? Uh, where else in the body has it gone? And that may make more of a difference in the way we treat them. Interesting. So um, as with treatments for COVID-19 and, and I think sort of across the board, um, I know that a lot of people have have come under attack for treating cancer with quote unquote alternative methods. Have you run into problems um, from from licensing authorities or anyone else? Have you have you had problems like that? Oh yes, uh, it, you know, not nearly as badly as uh, some uh, predecessor clinics. I mean, clinics back in the nineteen seventies were just brutalized. Um, you know. Um, you know, had their files stolen and all, all kinds of uh, nasty behavior on the part of uh, regulatory authorities who I suppose I shall not name right now. Anyway, um, and then you may know of Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski, uh, mm -hmm. his 30-year war against, uh, you know, just egregious overreach and, and frankly, a lot of corruption. Uh, you probably know that uh, there's a certain regulatory agency which adds an 80% revolving door of personnel with the, um, with the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, our time is not immune from this. I mean, uh, we have very pleasing attempts coming from regulatory authorities in our time. And just getting back to COVID, I mean, if you consider each of the frontline doctors, mm -hmm. uh, each of them had their... Now that's absolutely absurd. It's inexcusable. Uh, the people on those boards should just resign immediately because if they're not going to do their job of protecting the public and if they're just going to protect interests of corporate affiliates that they're not supposed to have. But they do have corporate affiliates. And yes, it affects a lot of medical boards across across different uh, different types of medical practice. Scott Jensen is a, a medical doctor and a state senator in Minnesota. He uh, was, I think, the first I was aware of to expose the financial underpinnings of the entire COVID phenomenon. I call COVID a phenomenon because there are many aspects to it, only one of which is actually microbiological. Uh, Anyway, Scott Jensen had talked about the U.S. CARES Act, which was an act of Congress that designated $175 billion uh, for COVID treatment. The trouble with it is that uh, hospitals were offered $5,000 for treatment of a flu or pneumonia patient, but $13,000 for treatment of COVID patients. Now, those diseases can look quite similar and be very confused and 
the long list of symptoms that had been attributed to COVID could easily be attributed to uh, flu, pneumonia, or COPD. So what happened was um, hospitals were, you know, shutting their doors to heart disease and cancer patients to a great extent, and many of those patients were afraid to go into the hospitals. Anyway, uh, though that business sort of died down for them, and then uh, they received uh, COVID funding, you know, for calling everybody who walked in the door COVID. Uh, well, I don't know about everybody, but they, you know, it was a financial incentive that should not have existed. And so we got a lot of diagnoses of COVID. If those patients were then put on ventilators, the hospital gained $39,000 per person. And then uh, if the person died, well, they had had a COVID test uh, within the last 60 days or so, they were called a COVID death. But it was also, uh, Dr. Jensen said, why am I being asked to diagnose COVID even presumptively, it, even without the test? It just saying, okay, that, that guy over there died of COVID. So uh, he, was, he was really um, pointing out that this was a problem anyway. His medical board went after him, you know, for no good reason. And these regulators really need um, an over, uh, oversight authority because they're just getting out of hand. They are uh, not uh, very often not protecting the interests of the public. And they are just, you know, they make uh, corporate um, affiliations and deals on the side. And they use that to go after doctors who speak out and doctors who think independently. And that's wrong. And we really need an independent uh, oversight committee to look at these medical boards in every field, conventional, naturopathic, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, the role of these boards is uh, allegedly to protect the public, but they have to actually do that and not use it as a way to bludgeon doctors who uh, engage in free speech. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I had uh, Dr. Paul Thomas on the show earlier talking about, you know, he had same thing. He he had been sort of harassed by the medical board for years. And then as soon as he comes out with his study from his own practice, comparing the long-term health effects on of, of or health health results of vaccinated children versus unvaccinated, five days later they suspend his license. So it's just, you know, I think it's becoming so clear what you're talking about is so rampant. Um it's outrageous. Yeah, but hopefully more people are recognizing it now. Um because this is so much in, in the in the limelight. Um, I wanted to get back to the masks again. Um, what would you say to, to play devil's advocate? Because you've gone through probably all, and sorry, that's my cat. Um, you've gone through all, all these studies looking at mask efficacy, the harm from masks. What is the best argument in favor of wearing masks or is there one? I honestly don't think that a mask should be worn except, let's see, let's say uh, there's a strong dust storm here in the Phoenix area, we get haboobs. I, I believe that might be an Arabic word, I'm not sure, can't spell it. Uh, but anyway, that's when a dust storm is really intense and uh, you can't see very far in front of you and maybe it's blowing into your eyes. I could see uh, putting a loose bandana over the face uh, or better yet, getting indoors. Okay, look, I cannot see any value to wearing that. Okay, here's, here's one. 
Um, putting up drywall if you're doing construction. Uh, the uh, drywall dust does penetrate the mask. And by the way, drywall dust is much bigger than a coronavirus, of course. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, but less of it penetrates. Okay, honestly, uh, regarding uh, infectious disease, it's absolutely a bad idea to wear a mask. And partly because of the things that I mentioned about the incubation of bacterial colonies. Um, oh, and I can also tell you that um, masks have been shown, and I wrote a paper on that as well. Oh, it's also in the book that, but actually I can't take credit, Duke University actually showed it, that masks result in higher incidence of COVID. Masked populations have more COVID than unmasked populations. And after mask mandates went into effect, in most areas, the, uh, it was only a matter of a few weeks before cases began to rise, hospitalizations rose, and deaths rose from COVID. But here's why I can tell you how a mask uh, puts forth more COVID, if you want to know. Yeah, I, I, I've, please. All right. Let's take an unmasked person like myself. I am never masked. Okay. Respiratory droplets fall in front, and they don't fall very far in front. However, you put the mesh of a mask here, those respiratory droplets hit it with plosive force, as PPE expert Megan Mansell explains, and she taught this to me. Uh, anyway, they hit it with plosive force that breaks up the respiratory droplets into now aerosolized viral particles. And uh, they're lighter than the respiratory droplets. So instead of just falling immediately in front, they're lingering in the air longer. It's been shown that they go as far as 18 to 20 feet. And uh, so they're longer uh, in the air by time and by uh, distance. Now, there's an additional uh, factor. That is that uh, from a mask, there are side jets that come out here above the ears. There are brow jets that go straight up. Uh, past the eyes, oh, which is also irritating to a lot of people's eyes. And there are chin jets. Anyway, um, if you stand next to a masked person, you're going to get a powerful side jet, which will also go farther. Those have been shown to go several meters. Again, the unmasked person, the respiratory droplets are falling in front, but the masked person is sending uh, this shooting uh, by the nozzle effect. And mm -hmm. I showed the Bernoulli's equation there, the physics of it. It's, it's going out farther um, with more force out to the sides. So you don't want to stand next to either a masked person or where a masked person has been. Uh, so I, uh, this, is, this is really a problem uh, if you're worried about the transmission of COVID. I mean, I'm not worried about it because, you know, vitamin D and zinc and things like that are very readily accessible. I'm not afraid of COVID. Yeah, yeah, well, you're supposed to be, so... Well, we can talk about fear also. Yeah, well, <laughs> another aspect of all this. What? Let me just ask you about this. Um, so, what? What about? I'm just trying to trying to find a, a situation where because you know surgeons wear masks to prevent you know spittle or whatever dropping into the the body cavity that they're working on that sort of thing. Is there is there a similar like? Let's say I were visiting my aged great grandmother who also had diabetes and you know had had other risk factors and who herself was very worried about getting covid would it make sense for me to for a short period of time put on a mask 
just, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is it doesn't even, the, the, the big claim has always been, well, it, it's good at stopping droplets, but you're saying that it's really not even, it actually makes that worse. So is there, is there any situation where I might say, God, you know, this person is really, is really vulnerable. I want to do something to put a barrier up. Is there, is there any situation where it would make sense? I don't think so because of the uh, respiratory droplets being broken up into yeah. the aerosolized viral particles, which have uh, greater distance and greater time to float around. Uh, but also, uh, just going back to surgery for a moment, um, it was found that uh, masked surgeries resulted in more patient infections than unmasked surgery. I oh, may wow. very well be for that reason. Um, however, uh, if we think about when masks were originally worn in surgery, it was to prevent the body fluids from the patient from splashing back up into the face or the eyes of the surgeon. Oh, so the surgeon's not only wearing masks, but wearing goggles as well right. to uh, protect his or her eyes from uh, whatever might be spurting um, upward. But yeah, it was funny that, uh, not funny, um, it, you know, kind of surprising that the mass surgeries actually resulted in more yeah. uh, cases of infection, higher rates of infection than unmasked surgeries. Now, is this infection of, of any with anything or was, was this a COVID-19 specific study? Or was oh, this... no, not COVID. It was an older study. I was uh, I think they were looking more at uh, bacterial infections. I I don't want to say that because I have to go back and review the study first. Uh but I believe the um, it was it had to do more with bacterial infections of the patient of the surgery of the surgical patient. Okay, okay. Now you've written also about lockdowns, and in your book you you talk about lockdowns. Um, what what have you learned? What did you learn in your you know looking at the studies, looking at the the efficacy? Do lockdowns work? Well, you know, last spring as when uh, just about a year ago, uh, a lot of the United States was quote unquote in lockdown. Uh, but it, it was a sort of a state by state determination. And one thing that a lot of people maybe have forgotten or didn't know is that there were six states that never locked down. And, uh, but it was very interesting to me, mostly uh, through the Midwest. And uh, it was very interesting to me that they were right next door to states that did lock down. Uh, so mm -hmm. what that gave us is in science, you know, you want a perfect control uh, experiment to look at, see what happens. And so the, uh, the control group was right next to the experimental group. And it was especially interesting, I thought, when they had the same population density. Um, like, for example, uh, Iowa and Nebraska uh, did not lock down, but Kansas and Missouri did. And, uh, you know, the Dakotas uh, did not lock down, but Montana did. And so when we looked at those states with their neighbors, uh, we found that the states without lockdown did quite a bit better, about 10% better uh, when it came to uh, total deaths. And the reason, by the way, that I looked at total deaths is, you know, because so many heart disease deaths and, and COBD deaths, pneumonia deaths had been called COVID. Right. So I thought the right. only reason, the only way we're really going to assess this thing is look at total deaths. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, it was quite interesting. The, the free states did a lot better. And I, I, um, we, I have a peer reviewed article in that, um, 
It uh, gives screenshots from the CDC uh, web pages at that time. And uh, so a lot of uh, charts taken straight out of CDC from that, where that data came from. Why do you think that would be? Uh, oh, yeah. So um, I think that lockdowns had a, uh, a horrible effect on people. I mean, um, there was domestic abuse. There was depression. There was substance abuse as a result of uh, the devastation, the psychological devastation of lockdowns. And I would guess that that uh, maybe made a difference. There was a lack of medical care in many um, cases. Uh, for example, uh, heart disease and cancer, the two biggest killers, by the way, COVID was only the third leading cause of death in 2020 attributed to COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. Heart disease was still the leading cause of death with about 700,000 uh, Americans dying of it. And then uh, cancer was 600,000, which is typical of uh, a year in the United States. And how COVID for, came at number three. For a, for a yeah. typical year in the United States, where would respiratory illness itself fit in? Like where would, if you lumped sort of flu and pneumonia-like things all together, where would that be in the ranking of, of cause of death? Uh-oh, so sorry. I can't answer that off the top of my head. The reason Okay, I might just look that up. <laughs> you have chronic pulmonary diseases like COPD and pulmonary fibrosis, which take years to kind of kill pulmonary fibrosis. You know, only 20% of people are alive at the end of five years uh, after diagnosis. But you have acute uh, pulmonary respiratory uh, diseases such as um, flu and pneumonia. And so sorry, I don't have that figure off the top of my head. I mean, okay. sometimes they get lumped together and sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, just but I can tell you something about that if you if you're interested, here's a little factoid I that's in my most recent peer-reviewed paper. And that is um looking at this was uh, my co-author, Boris Borovai, uh had had a lot of great ideas and he has uh you know pushed me in directions of thinking in this uh COVID phenomenon that I started looking into things that wow, look at that. But it was his idea. One of them was uh look at medical oxygen sales for the last few years, including 2020. And one thing that just made my jaw drop to the floor is that medical oxygen sales went down from 2019 to 2020. They went down by an average of about 4% on the largest medical oxygen suppliers in the United States. Now, if COVID is caused by SARS-CoV-2, and if SARS stands for severe acute respiratory syndrome, well, a treatment would often involve oxygen. So why did sales of medical oxygen go down by about 4%? Uh, that was pretty eye-opening. So then uh, he said, well, all right, let's look at uh, the medical suppliers in general. Um, you know, IV poles, syringes, uh, this and that, that may be used, uh, cotton balls, alcohol pads, you know, the works that may be used in a hospital. And um, those did uh, increase from 2019 to 2020, but not as strongly as the increase over the previous five years. In other words, the strong increase over the previous uh, five years had started to taper a little bit. Uh, anyway, there wasn't uh, an indication of a pandemic from either of those. Uh, so I have to question if there was a pandemic. I mean, uh, uh, certainly not of a respiratory uh, virus. If, if medical oxygen sales actually went down, 
from 2019 to 2020. So there, I use screenshots of uh, Wall Street earnings reports and Wall Street sales reports uh, from Wall Street. And that's in the paper. Oh, well, that ended up in the book also. Okay, okay. And, and I'll be linking to that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, one of the other things that I wonder about, and I don't know if anyone, well, maybe you would know if anyone has, has looked at this is at the outset, especially the treatment for COVID-19 in hindsight, you know, we can say, well, they didn't know what to do. They were putting people on ventilators, but they were also very early on saying, well, we're not going to treat it. We're not, and you know, wait until you're in need of urgent care, wait until you're in a really bad situation and then come in and we'll put you on a ventilator. I mean, in hindsight, that, that I, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial or like that, that this was deliberate, but in hindsight, that killed people. It am I, certainly. am I wrong? I mean, so when we're, oh, looking, it killed people. when we're looking at deaths from COVID, you've got to pull out deaths from mistreatment of COVID and, and abandonment yep. of, of treatment, abandonment of patients, you know, to what extent were the deaths, even, even if we look at, I like to look at excess deaths, because again, that's something, you know, that that's yeah. not, you can't fudge that by labeling things COVID-19, but if you were to look at excess deaths and try to pull out, well, how much, how much of those were due to the fact that a anyone testing positive was simply not being treated for, for a long time until they were, you know, probably beyond treatment. B people were being forced into nursing homes who were, who were infected. C the whole ventilator thing, D suppression of, of other treatments like vitamins, IV, vitamin C, vitamin D, um, hydroxychloroquine, all of those things. To what extent were the excess deaths the result of medical malpractice? COVID deaths were very, very preventable. We've had the knowledge all along. We've had the resources all along. And those resources, those treatments are cheap. They are low cost, uh, which is part of the reason that they were fought so uh, uh, vehemently. I mean, you you may know that uh, ivermectin, for example, uh, a dose is less than 10 cents on the U.S. dollar. Um, in Africa, and it has very long history of use in Africa. It was invented in 1975. The inventor, Dr. Omura, uh, won a Nobel Prize for that work. It actually was one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century, ivermectin. And I say that because it has been a fantastic anti-worm, anti-parasitic, and it's used, uh, you know, when you look at the 31 countries in the uh, center rectangle of uh, equatorial Africa, um, they're, uh, they've had tremendous success against COVID. COVID bounced off them. And right. why is that? Uh, hydroxychloroquine is uh, taken frequently for uh, its effect against malaria, which yeah. is a threat there. And as an antiparasitic uh, preventative, uh, ivermectin is taken very often at a dose of only one dose, one oral dose per year. Anyway, oh, wow. uh, but both drugs have been absolutely tremendous against uh, COVID, so much so that the largest meta-analysis, and I discuss this in great detail in the book, uh, the largest meta-analysis said for uh, hydroxychloroquine to not work, to be ineffective against COVID, after all of these studies, over 200 studies have shown how effective it is, uh, it would have to be one in 327 quadrillion chance 
that it's ineffective. In other words, uh, it's it's effective. Okay, now for ivermectin, one out of 500 trillion, you know, a chance that would be ineffective after it's shown such great effect. And I can talk about mechanisms to be like, um, you know, I go into the book in some mechanisms and because it gets a little bit into the weeds of immunology and cell organelles and that kind of thing. Um, I have a glossary at the end of, you know, when I'm talking about macrophages and neutrophils, what those things are and that kind of thing, just because I like to talk about how are these treatments working uh, to defeat COVID so well? Well, and, it's a, and it's a really early treatment. They're even working with rescue. Yeah. And that's it's it's a that's a really interesting question because you know when you're talking about an antiparasitic, just you know as a layperson yeah. looking at that it doesn't make any sense. You know why why would ivermectin work? So yeah, if you want to just say a little bit about that. Oh yeah, well it turns out that ivermectin is uh, very helpful against um, the spike protein of the coronavirus. It it has three parts to that protein. Ivermectin blocks all three. I, I, all three. I mean, one would be great, but yeah, it blocks all three of them because they are the similar to what you. Because they're similar to what you'd find on a on a parasite, or just. Oh, that might be a case. That that's over my pay grade. Okay, but, but, I, I haven't done the parasite. I haven't looked into okay. the ivermectin versus the parasite. It is interesting, though, that it does come uh, from a. Uh, from uh, soil organisms, and that that is what produces ivermectin. So probably a natural history of uh, various um, soil organisms and their um, conflict and competition with each other uh, may have created these um, these results. I mean, you know, drugs are sometimes used off-label for things that, that turns out to be as effective as the on-label, simply because it was discovered later. Oh, okay, but. But ivermectin doesn't only do that. It inhibits um, uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. This is an enzyme that is necessary for the replication of the virus. But uh, ivermectin shuts it down. And oh, wow. ivermectin also, there's a protein that would allow a virus to get into the nucleus of the cell. Ivermectin shuts that down too. Ivermectin, in other words, blocks COVID at five different points. And this is a drug that's 10 cents on the U.S. dollar. Well, that that would just blow that U.S. CARES Act, the $175 billion. <laughs> yeah, right we can't so have I that. guess this is why it's not very popular. I mean, it should be a household word all over the world, ivermectin, for what it's done. I mean, it, it's as big a discovery as penicillin. Um, and the achievement and the you know, lives that it saved. Three, 3.7 billion doses have been uh, given over the world in the last uh, 36 years or so of its existence. Anyway, I think, I think it's a marvelous, uh, marvelous thing, you know, and it could have saved so many lives here in the United States if, if it's alleged that a half a million people have died specifically of COVID. Well, I, yeah. I, and I think some of them actually died of other things. Yeah. But we should have at least tried this with them. And mm -hmm. then, you know, hydroxychloroquine has other mechanisms. Uh, I also write about vitamin D, vitamin C, and zinc in the book. Great. And uh, they each have their own mechanisms. And like I say, it gets into the weeds a bit. But that's great. That's what, you know, a lot of people are, are very hungry for that to understand why, you know, there's there's so much information out there. There's so much um propaganda, I'll just call it what it is. And there's so much quashing of information. So I think to have to have something really solid, I'm just going to hold it up again, um, your book, 
to have something that does go into the weeds a bit and really talks about, well, here's the argument for why vitamin D does work. Here's the argument for ivermectin. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in that. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, the whole off-label use thing is so, is so interesting because as you said, Drugs are used off-label all the time. They're used for for purposes that they're that they weren't approved for. They're used in age groups they weren't approved for, and now all of a yeah. sudden, you know, there's this you know, pharmacy boards across the United States were saying, well, no, you 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 can still prescribe hydroxychloroquine for this, this, and this, but not for COVID nineteen. So, right. have you ever seen anything like that before, where where an off-label use was cr- a specific off-label use was cracked down on in that way? Well, of course, the FDA has never been fond of nutrients, and they've really hated homeopathy. Oh, oh I want yeah. to get under the skin. Talk about homeopathy. I mean, that's right. the, the cross before the vampire. You know. uh, so anyway, uh, well, speaking of the cross before the empire, I, I delve a little bit in the book into the history of garlic. I mean, those of us who have any European ancestry likely can be grateful to garlic for uh, having a great effect against Yersinia pestis, the uh, bacteria that caused the um, bubonic plague. Uh, Those of us who are descended from garlic eaters. In fact, with maybe the non-garlic eaters didn't uh, live to reproductively. I'm not sure. Uh, But anyway, garlic has been used by the ancient Sumerians the ancient Egyptians, um, the ancient Israelis, the ancient Chinese, and many other cultures, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. Um, So, uh, okay, well, anyway, I think garlic is a bit of a digression because I don't think it's the most helpful thing um, regarding COVID. I think those other ones uh, are more helpful. So, sorry, I didn't mean to go down a path of garlic. No, 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 that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting too. we're in this place where I think for anyone paying attention, even if they weren't aware of the dynamics beforehand, it's pretty clear that there's an effort to squash information um, about helpful treatments. You know, we're talking about COVID-19, but really about cancer, about about a lot of things, and to suppress anyone who, to suppress voices that criticize you know, the official position on, on medical issues, which, you know, just sounds crazy when you, when you, when you think about it. Um, how did we get here? I think um, perhaps when uh, we've seen corruption in government uh, in the past, uh, we've been a bit too complacent or cynical and said, well, they're always going to be corrupt. You know, that's how politicians are. And allow corruption to continue. Allow, you know, um, that kind of, uh, allow lobbyists into Congress. I mean, so that uh, years ago, uh, GlaxoSmithKline and Google uh, signed a, um, a third of a billion dollar deal. I think that was the amount. Anyway, I thought, well, that's probably not going to end well. You know, when Google and pharma are allied, uh-oh. And then you see, as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, Twitter um, and even more so Facebook, uh, very intolerant of views that do not ultimately benefit the pharmaceutical industry. Kind of sad. Uh, you know, there are people who love Facebook uh, and they they are devastated when uh, they get kicked off or their group is suddenly eviscerated, evaporated. I mean, there are people with uh, tens of thousands of groups with tens of thousands of um, 
users on Facebook, when Facebook determines that the content is unacceptable to them, uh, it just disappears. So I don't even know if all these people can connect with each other after that. It's just kind of sad. And, uh, you know, when that half of team reality got kicked off of Twitter, I, every day uh, when I see um, Alex Berenson on Twitter, I think, oh, thank goodness he's still on there. You know, he's local spokespeople. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, he's still there. Yeah. Yeah. But but who knows how much long? I mean, I'm just right? surpri- I'm surprised. I was surprised to see you kicked off. I've been surprised to see other people you know, it's like, it just seems kind of random. They'll just decide. And, and again, yeah. to, to get back to your case, did you ever get anything more than just, uh, you know, thank you for your patience. We'll get back to you. Did you ever get any more of an explanation or, or a chance to, to, to make an argument? No, I didn't. Uh, it's just, uh, Okay, if I made a subsequent comment, they said, we see this as related to the previous um, matter, and we've added it to the file. Thank you for your patience while we look into it. That That's the extent of what I got. But yes, like you say, it does seem to be random. For example, each of the time that I was suspended from Twitter, I noticed that there were other individuals who, because I can still read Twitter, you know, and just uh, view it and can't do anything with it. Anyway, but I see there are other individuals who have said exactly what I've said and even cited the same news articles. For example, um, Mm. I think it was, yes, the last time that Twitter suspended me, it was for Israel National News uh, posted an article about um, some researchers at um, a a French university, University of Marseille, I believe. And uh, they were Israeli researchers. Anyway, they were looking at Israel and the data coming out of Israel because, you know, Israel was the earliest really to uh, vaccinate so uh, thoroughly against COVID. Anyway, um, those researchers concluded that the COVID shot was, let me get this straight, um, dozens of times more deadly than COVID for seniors, but hundreds of times more deadly than COVID for people uh, not yet seniors. In other words, that was more or less a quote. I made sure I quoted it accurately. I put quotation marks around it. I linked it to Israel National News where the article came from. And they said, unacceptable, you are suspended. That violates uh, Twitter rules. And did they say which, which rule or like nothing more oh. specific than that? Just yeah, exactly. That's a slippery slip of a, you know, any rule that they feel like throwing at you at the moment. Um, anyway, other people on Twitter also cited, linked to, and quoted the exact same article. And they're still on. I'm not going to complain about that. I'm glad they're there. And, yeah. you know, I yeah. get to read their stuff sometimes, but it does seem a bit unfair. Yeah, it does. It does point to how how kind of random it is, and you know, yeah. it may just be that well, some another user complained about you, and so they received they received the complaint and then had to act on it. But still, just the whole process, you know, when I when I look at it and and when when I hear accounts like like yours, it just seems you know reminiscent of really of, of Soviet courts where there's yeah. there's no there's no chance to make your case really. There's no there's no hope for appeal and you know, granted, Twitter is not a court of law. They're a private company. They can do what they like, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make them look good for sure. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't do much to further open conversation on important topics. Uh, the only uh, silver lining I can see in that cloud is that uh, the process is so corrupt, becoming so much more obviously corrupt and mm-hmm. fascist. 
that uh, it may ultimately implode of its own, uh, you know, of its own lack of merit. Uh, for example, we see um, the vaccines that have been pushed so heavily and propagandized so thoroughly. Uh-oh, they're not working so well at this point. Hmm. Well, you know, that that might lead people to say, gee, maybe we should have paid more attention to vitamin D and zinc and all that kind of thing in the first place. Um, I don't know if it will, you know, convince many people, but there's so many uh, families are kind of ideologically divided too. Um, and mm -hmm. ultimately, maybe the people who have really been kicking their own rears with masks uh, the entire last year, and then if they get the vaccine, they are beginning to feel some pretty nasty, unexpected side effects. Um, maybe they'll finally say, hmm, maybe, uh, you know, the other guys were correct. I, I don't need to be proven correct. I don't need to say, I told you so. Um, I need people to stop ruining their health with masks. I mean, I, that that uh, bothers me more than anything else. It makes, I mean, we, so we have a daughter with special needs and um, she's, she's nonverbal um, and we're, we're, I'm in some, some groups, like some, some family groups um, on social media. I can't even look at those groups now because they're just, they're filled with pictures of people putting their, their children with autism in masks and talking about how, you know, how happy they are that their child will tolerate. It's just, I, I just can't, I just can't, I don't even, it's like, I'm, I'm not even angry. Yeah. It's not even anger. It's more just this, this horror, this, what are we witnessing? And I just feel helpless to stop it. I feel like I'm making arguments. Other people are making arguments. I'm getting information out there. What more can we do? I mean, I, like you, I, I keep expecting people to say, oh, wow, this was a giant mistake and how silly we've all been. Let's go back to normal. Let's stop doing this. But it doesn't happen. I mean, what more can we do? Ah, uh, it is so hard. I, I mean, maybe um, also, we've well, as the weather warms, um, you know, a seasonal virus such as COVID, which really is very dependent on vitamin D deficiency. You know, vitamin mm -hmm. D deficiency being uh, north, being winter, uh, et cetera, uh, you know, skin covered against the sun. Uh, okay, so as that eases, you know, March becomes April, April will become May, and then, uh, you know, we see, wait a minute, Florida and Texas are where the rest of us kind of want to get to. Now, how come they're doing so well and we're not doing well? And uh, I don't think they've all had the vaccine yet, hmm, but they're doing pretty well anyway. At some point, it should become obvious to even a casual observer that, gee, uh, you know, maybe we didn't need to uh, lock down mask and, uh, you know, have a vaccine. Maybe there was another way to approach this. Yeah. I don't know. I keep hoping that. I keep hoping that. Thank you so much for coming on. Is there any parting thoughts, anything else that you'd like to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to put again, I'm going to do a plug again for your book and I'll, I will have this in the show notes. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Uh, thank you. It's on uh, Amazon and uh, oh, I, uh, uh, I would just like to say that after the research that I did, that's in the book, um, I, I said it over 500 studies, but 130 or so of them are on vitamin D uh, because vitamin D is absolutely wonderful. I honestly think it's almost impossible to die of COVID 
with adequate vitamin D on board. And oh. it's free. Uh, the homeless are probably the wealthiest in vitamin D. Uh, they're outdoors uh, more than the rest of us. And, um, you know, that it begins with sunlight hitting the skin. So I, I never have used the sunscreen. I warn my patients about sunscreen. Sunscreens have toxic carcinogens, uh, oxybenzone, methylcinamate, uh, chemicals like that. I've warned people against those. And they also block the sun. Uh, we need the sun. Our ancestors got the sun. Uh, you didn't see many ancestors uh, over previous generations and eons dying of uh, skin cancer. So, you know, trust the sun a little bit more and trust your television a little bit less, please, and get some vitamin D. That's what I would say to people. Okay. Thank you so much. Certainly. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. I'd love to have you back on again. Thank you.